This is why I like being conservative because it's not about an orthodoxy. Yeah. It's it's about the the challenge of caring about the same things, a free, safe, and prosperous nation, and having a debate on how to get there. Yeah. That's what makes us better. Yeah. It makes the country better. So the the existence of the debate is actually a sign of something that's healthy. Welcome to the Kevin Roberts Show. Thanks so much for watching and or listening. We're several weeks into this project of doing a weekly show. You're making that possible. Really grateful for that. And I hope that you tell a friend about it if you're enjoying it. You're in for a special treat this week. And I say that not just to be polite, but because even though we usually have guests who don't work at the Heritage Foundation, I woke up one morning last week and said, we need to have Dr. Jim Carafano, our vice president of the Davis Institute for Foreign Policy, join me because Jim is a great guy and a great mind. And I say that genuinely. I believe that before I got to Heritage for reasons we might talk about. But please join me in welcoming Jim Carafano to the show. Jim, yeah. thanks for being here. I can only repeat the words that my wife often says is, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, we're about to find out. Oh. You know, can I, I want to start, can I start with- I told my, you there are no rules. You start favorite, however you'd like. No, my favorite Winston Churchill quote, mm-hmm. um, probably one of the greatest leaders in modern history. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, America will always do the right thing. Mm-hmm. After it is exhausted, every other possible option, which might be a good definition of d- democracy, but that answer is just not going to cut it. Yeah. We cannot wait till we have screwed everything up and taken the lazy, easy, comfortable ideological, ideological choices before we had to figure out how to deal with the world. And, and that's because if you add up what I really see the kind of the three great destabilizing powers in the world today, mm-hmm. R- Russia, China, and Iran, obviously China, the greatest. Why, why do you worry about them in particular? Because they can disrupt the parts of the world that matter to us because yeah. we have global interests and global responsibilities and we want to protect our stuff. And mm-hmm. I think if there's one thing that people understand is if you don't protect your stuff, people come and mess with it. Yeah. And if you add them together collectively, the, the size of the Chinese economy the dangers of the Russian military. And, and people say, well, the Russian military, they're not very efficient. Well, they're, they're very good at killing innocent unarmed people We're seeing and, that. and destroying their lives and livelihood. And, and Iran is in a very strategic place. They can destabilize really the connectivity of the world, whether it's oil or transport or migrant population. If you add them together and all the capabilities they have, they're actually a bigger threat to us mm-hmm. than the Soviet Union ever was. So when I, as a layman to foreign policy, unlike you and your your colleagues, say, also being a son of the Cold War, worried about the Union in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up, that as as fearful as we were, and we were right to be fearful, that that almost pales in comparison to the collective threats that you just outlined. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, and okay. and we don't get that because we've been sleepwalking through history for 30 years. And we yeah. all believed that at the end of the Cold War, we could all just kind of kick back. And and we learn these terrible, horrible habits that yeah. we don't have to take serious problems seriously. And when you boil down to how can you do this, you know, we have basically kind of three answers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've talked about this and you've actually been re- really great on it. Um, we can... We can we can run back to our shores, mm-hmm. and I don't accuse those people of being isolationists because they're right. not isolationists. They but the reflective answer is do nothing. 
yeah. and wait and see if really bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And then if really bad things happen, try to do something, right? Or, and, and by the way, I'm not talking about conservative isolationists. That was the definition of Obama's foreign policy mm-hmm. and is actually the definition of Biden's foreign policy. So if you are kind of the, the, the traditional, traditional minimalist foreign policy person mm-hmm. on the right, your foreign policy is actually closest to the foreign policy of Obama and Biden. Yeah. Um, but the alternative answer, which is this kind of very muscular, well, if there's a problem, let's go out and solve it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just kick butt. Um, I often associate this with, with President Bush because I, th- I think in fairness, the, the foreign policy we had in the early 2000s was, was over muscular. That's actually not even a Republican thing. I mean, that in many ways was uh, um, President Johnson's problem and some other presidents. But And so between the – and the problem with that is that actually could lead to World War III. Yeah. Actually, they could both lead to World War III. You can get to World War III by sitting back and convincing your enemies – that they have all the opportunity in the universe. And this is really kind of how we got to the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Or you can you can say, okay, let's throw down and you can wind up in places like fighting like Afghanistan and Iraq or in Western Europe or the Middle East. And that could escalate into something really big. Okay, so if if where's the third way? It's your term, which I don't like, by the way. Yeah, so, no. Yes. I know. And only <laughs> only because I, I read Grand Greenman, The Quiet American. And <laughs> You know, that third way didn't turn out. So and people, so you, you're fond of saying, Kevin, this isn't the third way. This is the right way. <laughs> exactly. But people should read Grand Green um, and, uh, and about Grand Green. We should, you know what? We should talk movies and culture and books. We shouldn't talk about well, look, I, stuff. For, for five but, minutes, Jim, I've been trying to provide an introduction to this episode <laughs> and you just launch right in. No, but it's fantastic. But, so but I know. But, what, you know, look, Kevin, I mean, why I think you're you are such a great leader in here. And I mean, that is. um you're you're trying to lead us in in really in the right way, and and I say it's Trumpian, not to associate you with with Trump. It's or the anybody. hair, isn't it? But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's dudes. If you don't want to be the world's policeman or the world's babysitter or start World War Three, and you don't want to hide under your pillow, mm-hmm. then what is the right answer? And the answer is actually, I think, what Donald Trump tried to do and understood instinctively. Mm-hmm. And people forget this because Donald Trump is a child of the 1980s. If you look at when he came to adulthood as a thinker and a leader, the president of the United States was was, um, Ronald Reagan. And Trump saw in Reagan a model for how to lead Mm -hmm. and uh, and understood that that leading was different than what he was doing in New York City as a businessman. That there was a different set of metrics about what what's important. It's about making money. It's about having power and influence. He got that. But when he looked about, okay, if I ever grow to be a leader on the world stage, it's not about how do I make the most money? It's about how do I protect the interests of the people that I've been elected to protect? Right. And he saw that model as Ronald Reagan. And that's why he instinctively gravitated to this idea of peace through strength, which is you don't go out to slay dragons. You don't hide under the bed. You make a realistic assessment of what your interests are, and then you demonstrate the willingness to protect them. And you call that the third way, which is fine, but it is the right way. It's mm-hmm. it is, and it's the right way because that is the only path that is going to steer this nation to a safe, prosperous, and responsible future. And I mean, I think we should just talk about the 
I mean, I'd be interested in it because, because, you know, we, we didn't come out against the supplemental because we can't do that because we're a nonprofit. Right. We don't, but we said, this is a bad bill. And I think, I absolutely think we said it's a bad bill for exactly the right reasons. Mm -hmm. It, it's not that we want to do nothing. So we're talking about the Ukraine aid package, right. $40 billion. $40 billion. Package. It's not that we want to do nothing. We want to do the right thing, the right thing for Americans, which is actually arguably actually the right thing for Ukraine. You know, the, the defining moment for this is, you know, Max, the mm -hmm. uh, who's our foreign assistance guys, um, people can Google him. Uh, but, you know, Max is one of the most experienced foreign assistance experts on the planet earth mm -hmm. because max has actually done this in real life he mm -hmm. has um overseen millions of dollars being spent in places like iraq and afghanistan where people are shooting in the most complicated situations where so nobody knows more about this stuff mm -hmm. than max max read that bill and then five seconds later ran into my office he says jim he says if we try to spend this much money this fast there will be massive fraud, waste, and abuse. And that's yep. just not a bad for American citizens. That's, that is actually, we are actually working against our own interests because what we want is a stable, secure, and free Ukraine. The Ukrainian government knows they have problems with corruption in Ukraine. Right. They know that when you throw masses amount of money in the country, it actually makes it more difficult for them to fight corruption. Yeah. So, so I thought, you know, and we didn't, you know, the funny thing is you and I never talk. I mean, you and I never really talked about this. We intuited this. I, yeah. I, I mean, when the, I instinctively knew, I mean, that this was a bad bill and, and we should not support this. And, and you already, I mean, you already knew that. And this, you know, not to compare you with Donald Trump, but oftentimes people would be shocked when they go to talk to Trump and they would just assume, well, this guy, no, but he would make the right choices because he, he understood this this notion of the hierarchy of interests, you know, being a responsible steward of America's uh, tax dollars, but also their security and also their mm -hmm. freedoms, and and that his job was to make a hard call about what is the the best thing to do. But, but to go back to the Churchill thing, and and I, I want to ask you, I put because it's your show, so I should ask who who your You're favorite. Not supposed to ask questions. No, no, who your favorite leader is because this mm -hmm. is something that I think Churchill actually got wrong. He, you know, he could. He believed that Americans would come around in the end mm -hmm. and you and that you could not save the world without America. And he had faith and confidence in his right. And he was obviously right to do that. But the problem is, is the distance is there is no charm of distance anymore. Mm -hmm. um, the economies are intertwined. The interests are intertwined. Um, Americans cannot sit back and continue to make bumbling mistake after bubbling mistake, whether it's being overly aggressive or and and assume that we'll just be fine in the end. And if there's anything people take away from this, and yeah. I and I know you agree with this, don't think that it'll all be okay. Yep. No matter how much we screw up, because it won't be. So who's your who do you look to when you think about Well, in leaders? good academic historian form, I'll overthink this and give you multiple <laughs> answers. So I like many people gravitate to Churchill, but I'm also enamored with Harry Truman's post-war leadership. I think he had a clearer vision of the world than FDR. And there are aspects of FDR's leadership that I like. But I would actually say Reagan or Thatcher. Yeah. And that's probably because I had the privilege of growing up under their leadership. And, and you know, the other part of that triumvirate, John Paul II, and mm -hmm. not just because I'm Catholic, but I have a lot of non-Catholic friends who admire him because being the spiritual leader he was, 
having grown up under two forms of totalitarianism, uh, once one, the Nazis, and then next, of course, the Soviets, he understood that he also had a political and cultural role. And in a lot of ways, I think John Paul's lessons or lessons from his leadership kind of bring us full circle to your point, which is that this isn't merely a political question. This isn't merely a foreign policy question. This isn't merely an economic question. When you add up, as, as you did several minutes ago, all of the threats from those countries around the world, and you realize, I'm not going to use the word existential because it's overused. This is a huge threat to the United States. And it really does show that Churchill's assessment of the, of the United States or of Americans is unacceptable. We can't wait, in other words, mm-hmm. to sum up here for all of this to come to an end. And so let's sort of Let's unpack this piece by piece, but I want to I want to just, if you don't mind, press pause on that conversation thread. And for the very few people who listen or watch or watch this and they don't know who you are, how in the world did you start doing what you're doing? You're a very humble guy, but I need you to sort of check a little bit of that humility at the door and tell us your credentials for making these assessments. I I will do that because you're in charge (laughs) and it's your show. But I I do want to go back to the leadership thing. Oh, we're going to come back to it. Yeah. And and talk about how studying leaders and how important that is. Um, I, yeah. Well, first of all, I, I'm I am blessed. Um, I went to West Point, um, not because I actually wanted to go to West Point, but because my dad served in the Korean War during the Korean War, and his his favorite officer, who's actually killed in Korea, was a, a lieutenant who he just he just admired mm. so incredibly well, and um, and he was a West Point graduate. And mm. so, to my I'm going to choke up when I say this. Sure. So to my dad. Fitting. No, no. I mean, to my dad, this person was the epitome of, you know, a great leader. Mm. And he just automatically associated that to West Point. Yeah. So, Mm. so, uh, you know, back in the day, you didn't, you didn't apply to a a million different colleges. You know, I applied to Florida State and Gainesville and then West Point because a, a West Point athletic recruiter guy came by and, and, and I just, my dad said, oh, you should, they sent me a card and I said, that my dad said, Hey, you should fill out the card and send it. In. So I sent it in. So, so I wound up doing this and I, and I actually got accepted at, at the university of Florida. It's so not Florida state university of Florida first. Yeah. Right. And, and they said, send us a $50 check for your dorm deposit, which <laughs> was an incredibly enormous sum of money. That I thought like, was, and my dad said, why don't you wait till you hear from West point? And I was like, okay, fine. So um, West point sends you this very lovely embossed letter and everything. And I opened that letter and, when I looked at my father's face, yeah. you know, I just, I just could not go to West Point, which I actually knew nothing about really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I went to the Academy and, uh, I, and I think like everybody else, you know, you have a five-year commitment. I go fine, whatever. And then after five years, I'll do, and I stayed in the army for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did all kinds of different things, including getting a PhD in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I actually thought I'd be a history professor when I retired. Um, and it was a fabulous it was a fabulous thing. So my career spanned the worst of the, um, the army's experience in the kind of the, the, uh, I was commissioned in Jimmy Carter's hollow military. I, I, I was in all stationed all over the world. I lived through the Ronald Reagan revolution and the yeah. post-war period and actually ended up serving in, in, in the Pentagon. Um, and so I, you know, I did my, did my time. It was great. You can't stay forever. And, uh, and, and again, because I, I went back to West Point and taught history, I thought, mm-hmm. oh, well, I mean, it was the only thing I did in the army that I enjoyed that seemed like it had any civilian application. I thought, oh, well, I'll just be a historian. So I finished my PhD and I retired. I went to work at a small think tank called the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessment for a short time. And I thought, okay, I'll stay here because, because, you know, in universities you have to apply and that could take right. months and years and everything. And so while I was there, I actually got a call from a, a guy at Heritage and, uh, and offered me a job. 
uh, I knew in the army. And I was like, okay. And I can be honest with you. Um, I don't have to be honest with you actually, but you know, I knew, I knew Her I, did, I knew heritage was a conservative think tank because I, yeah. you know, but, but that was pretty much all I knew. Right. Yeah. And, and I thought, well, I wasn't hired to be a conservative. I was hired to be a, you know, a defense and security guy. Sure. So I can do that. Right. So I get here and I'm here about a year and I went to Lee Edwards, who's the icon mm -hmm. of the conservative movement and, um, quietly like off to the, I don't, yep. Lee probably doesn't even remember this conversation. And I said, Lee, what's a conservative? And he goes, <laughs> he looked at me like, and he goes, and he goes, he said, well, Jim, conservatives believe in limited government, a strong national defense, a free economy, and individual liberty. And I said, well, Lee, doesn't everybody believe in that? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I was probably a lifelong conservative and never mm -hmm. really understood that till I came to Heritage. But what, uh, why, I, why I've been here and what I do is I oversee all the foreign and national security policy here at Heritage, intelligence, um, trade, you know, all things bad. Um, and, and I have a, a couple of dozen analysts that are just a world-class team, but why I did, and I stay at heritage is because to me, it's like no different than being in the army. You, there are people with a sense of mission who are here because they want to serve their nation and, and serving mm -hmm. for them is the most important thing. And I, I, I don't know. My, uh, my family is just predisposed to a lifetime of service. Everybody mm -hmm. are doctors, nurses, policemen, firemen, teachers. Um, I don't, there's not an entrepreneur in the house, but it's just a, our family ethos is mm -hmm. just, we, we, if you believe in the people that you are part of that bigger community, then the then the privilege of serving them is incredibly satisfying and worthwhile. Mm. And honestly, I, I've just never felt a place more comfortable to live that life. And so I, that's why I, I I've been at Heritage now almost as long as I was in the army. Wow, I didn't know that story. I knew bits and pieces of that. You and I got to know one another a few years ago when, in your current role and my previous role, we started doing some work on the Border Security Coalition, and and I was struck by your expertise, your humility, which I think was really evident in your response. But I I interrupted a a um, a strain of thought that you had going there, which was about leadership, and. As I was thinking about how <clears throat> I could ask you a question to get back to that, I thought your response is a great example of your leadership, the leadership that a lot of people in this organization have. The purpose of this podcast is not to sort of thump our heritage chests, but to just have a conversation about what we're seeing in the world. So try to try to bring us full circle here, Jim, and getting back to the leadership or the lack thereof that we see on the world stage relative to Ukraine, China, um, United States, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, part of it is I'll, you know, I'll fault, I'll fault the conservative movement for sure. a lack of leadership. And, and actually we were, we were talking about this the other day and, um, you know, I think the, the problem, why conservative leadership has failed, you know, in, in, in recent decades is because the conservative movement was brought together under Ronald Reagan with this notion, the country was headed in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And who are the people that want to change that? And you had, you know, evangelicals and social conservatives, uh, you had national security conservatives who were actually concerned about losing mm -hmm. the cold war. And then you had free market economic conservatives who were concerned about an economy that needed to be revived and recover. And they all got together and made common cause. Mm -hmm. And really, I think birth kind of the modern conservative movement. And, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, we lost Mitch Dector, the great American on the board for many years, right. 
um, her and her husband, Norman Podoritz, I mean, that was that generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them actually started out as far leftists yeah. who then became conservatives who said, you know, we do this. And I, I just don't, and that was great, but I don't think it's a, it's sufficient for the leadership for the world in which we live mm. because, because all the things that we face in this difficult modern world are kind of intertwined. Um, and, and, you know, we see this in dealing with China. It's not a foreign policy issue. China is a domestic issue. If yeah. you go to a university, there is a, there's a malicious Chinese influence at your university, right. right? So we can't afford to like each live in our own little closets and just come together once every four years and vote for the same person. And the way I describe it is, is, is you know, we treat, we used to treat conservatism like a buffet table, you know, like I'll, <laughs> I'll, have, a, I'll have a serving of, of pro-life and, you know, in a side of low taxes, but, you know, I'm really full of anymore, right? You know, social conservatives have to care about foreign policy, foreign policy conservatives have to care about national security. We all have to care about our economy. Mm-hmm. And and this gets to the difficult, and you can only do that by educating yourself yeah. and doing your homework. The, the burden on the average citizen to be knowledgeable in their own self-interest mm-hmm. is greater than it has ever been. And I actually look at that as exciting and an opportunity because if people remember, if you went to high school and you were successful and you did your homework, yeah, you didn't like doing homework, but- when you got done, you realized how exciting that was because you were a better, smarter, and more capable person, and you were better able to engage in the world and deal with things. Yeah. And and so I think people should look at the challenge of learning about issues that they know nothing about, China, Russia, inflation, immigration, border security, and they should see that as an exciting opportunity to grow themselves mm-hmm. and their families. But this gets back to the leadership question I was saying, because um, people have to read more. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in biographies. Mm-hmm. I think reading biographies of great leaders, and I don't, and not hiography, but because yeah. great leaders have flaws and weaknesses, sure. right? That is, you know, other than actually leading, I think that's one of the most powerful tools to learn. So, Margaret Thatcher, for, <clears throat> for example, I agree with you. I would never read a book written by Ma- Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Incredibly turgid. Um, on the other hand, there's a great book on on Margaret Thatcher leadership by our Kyle, our colleague Niall Gardner. Yeah. I would super recommend that. Um, uh, there's some other great books. I, I really love that you mentioned Harry Truman because, to me, Harry Truman in some ways is the most inspiring leader. Because if you look at the end of Harry Truman's presidency, when nothing really was going right. Um, and you know, Harry Truman could have run for reelection because mm-hmm. his first term was really filling out FDRs, and then he had his term. He he couldn't. He didn't run for re-election because he knew he'd never get elected. Yeah, this is in fifty-two. Fifty-two. Yeah. But what Harry Truman did was because that was the height of the Korean War. He made a lot of decisions, and there, there's a great uh, um, historian, this Robert Farrell, wrote about this. He made a lot of decisions which were politically suicide for him, mm-hmm. but from a national security, foreign policy, strategic perspective. They were the hard right choices. That's right. And when the when the when they said the buck started here, when it was really down, Harry Truman opted to do things that were good for the country, even mm-hmm. though they were personally destructive to him. Probably firing MacArthur was probably the yeah. ultimate example of that. That was right. political suicide. But it was, but it was, and even MacArthur, I think, in retrospect, off the side after a couple of drinks, would tell you that Truman <laughs> yeah. was right. Um, that's the, and I, I, that's what I admire about him. But it, we mm-hmm. have to think about these things. Um, By the way, the David McCullough biography of Truman is a masterpiece. It is good. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I, I agree with you about your your comment about biographies. I think that's a good way to learn history and and understand sort of the grand narrative in which all of these these subjects, because we're all flawed human beings, operated. Yeah. Sometimes at not just a really high level, but in a way that really did alter the course of history. Yeah. 
And I would say, look, even if you're not going to read, if you really care, make your children read. Yes. With the, put the first thing in their hand is a book and then a rattle. And if they're a kid and they're in grade school or high school, make them read and make them read biographies mm -hmm. and, and uh, about different leaders and learn. I mean, I think that is the most powerful thing you can, can, can possibly do. I mean, I, you know, I was stationed all over the world and, and, you know, I, I, I had an opportunity to get back to grad school and everything, but on all those years in between, you know, my best friend was the post library and I, I would force myself to read books about all kinds of things I knew nothing about. Uh, and I think that that, 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 uh, self-education, which is by the way, what I learned from my parents who are not actually great readers at all, mm -hmm. but they made me read. Yeah. Um, they knew. Yes. They, they asked. So what would you say was did. the most formative of those books that you read? Um, that's it. So I, you know, I, I point to, um, two biographies um, that I that I think are good examples to read. One is uh, Vice Count Slim, Defeat into Victory. So Slim was uh, the commander in China burning India during World War II. Mm -hmm. And the other guy was a book, uh, Raymond Dallaire, who was the commander of uh, UN forces in Rwanda during the genocide. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. Slim actually, the book says everything, Defeat into Victory. They actually yeah. won. Um, Dallaire was a disaster. They, they yeah. did nothing to impede the genocide. But what I liked about both those books is they were both senior leaders who are in very difficult situations, who in their biographies, which you don't often see, are very self-critical and self-reflective. Mm -hmm. And so, it, so the Delaire and, and, and um, Slim would both say, oh, let me tell you how I screwed this up, right? And they, and they, would, and they would analyze their failures, to, to learn from them. Yeah. And it wasn't just about saying how great I was and all the great things I did. It was about understand what I got wrong, the consequences of that. And so to me, those are, even though they're both military guys, I mean, if, if I would put those together as great books of leadership to read. Okay. No, thanks, thanks for that tip. So we might come back to culture, but I know people are listening or watching this and want to get your assessment of what will happen in Ukraine over the next few months what we as a country, as a world need to do about the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. And then I'm going to ask you a question after that about what's what's the hot spot in the world or the potential hot spot in the world not named Ukraine or right. China or Taiwan. Yeah. Well, um, so the Russian one's easy, right? <clears throat> because, you know, for us, it was never about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Ukraine is the first step in a Russian in desire to expand their sphere of influence right. across all the post-Soviet states dictatorial control over Central Europe, NATO dissolved, the United States pushed away. Th that is the first large step in a world without yeah. America. That's the Russian plan. And so the answer is simple. We have to stop that. Re regardless of how the war in Ukraine ends, there are only two things that make Russia a threat to this peace and stability of Western Europe, and that is its military and energy. Mm -hmm. um, the military one's pretty simple. If you have a, um, a forward defense of NATO – that can not just say, okay, if you cross this line, we'll fight back, but says anything that crossed that line is going to die. You have a, a conventional and strategic defense in the NATO frontier that checkmates the Russian military. You don't have to fight with Russians. You don't need regime change. They can do whatever they want. They can drink yeah. vodka all day long, <laughs> but they can't bother you. And the other is energy. You know, um, the West and collectively the transatlantic community, the United States and Europe need access to reliable, affordable, uh, dependable, abundant energy without relying on buying it from our enemies. It's just that simple. And the answer to that's pretty simple. America is a global energy superpower. We need to produce all the energy we possibly can. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that will solve that problem. 
it's a, it's the greatest, maybe the greatest strategic challenge we face in the world today because the U.S. government and honestly most European governments have convinced themselves that the energy policy of the future is green energy. Mm-hmm. It is um, a transition to a, a, an electrical base that's based on reliable um, renewable systems and that gets to zero carbon emissions by 2050, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful idea. It only defies the laws of physics, chemistry, and economics. Otherwise, I'm sure it's fine. But <laughs> but it doesn't work. But they've convinced themselves and it does. In many cases, they've convinced their voters that it does. Right. And now they're faced with the reality that they, are, they have convinced people on a political agenda, which is not an energy agenda, mm-hmm. which is actually going against their self-interest, their economies. And actually being good stewards of the planet. Because you know what? If you look at our index of economic freedom that we publish every year for decades, the one thing you found is the number one predictor of whether a country is a really good steward of the environment is how wealthy they are. Hmm. The wealthier you are, the better the environment are. So we have to solve energy independence and energy dominance and um, deterrence, military deterrence. And then Russia's off the table. The China thing, which I, and I'm not saying this because I want a raise because you won't give me one anyway. <laughs> but when you walked in and said... It's all about China. It, and matter of fact, part of the reason why we talk about Russia is because it's all about China. Because China. in Europe, Russia is just China's stalking horse. What China wants is a Europe that's divided and distracted and 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 disorganized so they can, it can exploit Europe and it can push out and isolate the Americans. Um, this is the most consequential, difficult challenge that America's faced in American history since we, you know, since That's we right. broke away from the British and, and there, and there is no easy answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what we have to do is we have to, we have to be able to demonstrably demonstrate to the Chinese. No, we can't say this because they don't pay any attention to what we say. They pay attention to what we do. Yeah. We have to demonstrate, we have to show the Chinese that they cannot undermine our economy, they cannot threaten our physical safety, or those of key friends and allies, and they cannot touch and manipulate the freedom and independence of the American people. Mm-hmm. And until we can do that, the Chinese will never get the message. Now, China, personally, I think we're at peak China, to be yeah. honest with you. And, that, and there's a lot of evidence to support that. But, but that doesn't mean they're less dangerous. That's you know, right. Russia's been declining for a decade, and now they've almost they, they they got to the verge of triggering World War III in Europe. So yeah. sometimes the declining powers, which the Austro-Hungarian Empire can tell you, can be as big a problem as a rising power. Um, now is exactly the time. I mean, well, actually, this is the last time to deal with the China threat, um, as because they will fight to continue to expand, right. and we have to stop that because if they expand more. That's going to lead to more problems. If they contract, that will lead to problems, and we have to be prepared for that. So, and and I and and we we don't think it means you know isolating ourselves from doing business with anybody else or not talking that somehow we can wall off Fortress America. But but what we have to focus on are what are the malicious things the Chinese were doing, and not just telling them to stop, not just waving a finger. But physically going out and stopping them. Yeah. So whether it is Chinese lobbyists or Chinese influence in universities or the Chinese threat to to, to Taiwan, um, it's about demonstrating that we can do that. And the, the Chinese are not stupid people. Mm-hmm. Um, they will get the message if there's a if there's an obstacle there, they will try to go around it. Yep. Uh, but they will recognize that it's an obstacle. And if they can't get around it, they will recognize they have a problem. Yeah. And actually, the Chinese are pretty risk averse. Mm-hmm. If they bump up against a real problem, they're more likely to stop than do anything else. Yeah. No, thanks for that response. So in addition to Ukraine, China, 
and the related problem of of what to do about Taiwan, of course, there's the rest of the world. Right. And so this is a question I've started asking you and and our foreign policy colleagues. What are the other hotspots or potential hotspots that because of the attention span we as Americans have toward foreign policy, which is to say just north of nothing. Yeah, right. Maybe it's those are getting lost in the shuffle. Yeah. What, would, what would you advise us to read more about? In yeah. Words? So I, I think there are, there, are, there are two collective groups. Well, three. Um, one is Europe. Yeah. Because what the Russians have done is if they've, they've created kind of all these buttons in Europe that they mm. can push and destabilize things. And so it's Ukraine today, but there's a, but it could be Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be Moldova, small mm-hmm. country next to Romania. It could be the Western Balkans. Mm. So we need to keep an eye on all of these because they all are places, they're all are things where Putin, Putin has consciously set up spaces where he can meddle with the peace and stability of Western Europe. So, we, so, and they're all difficult problems to solve, which is, you know, why Putin loves them. So that that's a collective group right. and dealing with that. Um, the second one is the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I, look you, I'm not partisan. I want our president to be successful. Sure. His policies, the single greatest threat to peace and stability in the Middle East is Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, in the way he's engaged. And we really wish that were not the case. And in the way he's engaging yeah. with Iran, in the way he is dismissing traditional allies, um, in the way he is just ignoring the, the, the geopolitical. Look, you know, I'll give you an example is you can say what you want, but the United States can never be a, an influence in the Middle East if we don't have relations with Turkey, Israel, mm. um, and Egypt. That's just a reality. Yeah. There's a third of his political party that would absolutely, you know, throw their ambassadors out of this country tomorrow. And you might not, they may not be your favorite governments, but dude, those, those guys are the balancing powers in that. Yeah. Region. So, um, so that I, I fully expect any day something to blow up in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and the and the other one is which is the one I emailed you about this morning, Latin America. That's the one that concerns me. Oh my yeah. God! I I uh, look. This administration tried to is uh, is conscious as we speaking trying to destabilize the government of Guatemala, yeah. which is actually one of the few countries in Latin America that actually want to work in the United States. That's right. We're we're, we're a, a federal agency. The U.S. Uh, AID is actually funding groups that are trying to destabilize the government mm-hmm. and uh, and. Uh, they just, they just engaged the doing around sanctions relief for Cuba and Venezuela. At the exact moment that both those governments are actually expanding their uh, oppression of their own people mm-hmm. and their malicious activities in the region, mm-hmm. and we're do, giving them sanctions relief to engage with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, not only you have this kind of perfect storm where not only is the United States having policies which are actually bad for us and bad for Latin America, the, the Chinese who are very, they look, they, I'll give you an example. Just the other day I was in um, Budapest where uh, a whole panel of Europeans stood up and said, China has lost central Europe, which I thought was unbelievable statement between, between Ukraine mm-hmm. where, you know, they, I mean, living on the edge of war, they see that and, the, and they see the Chinese support for the Russians and they see that the Chinese have no love of us. And the other thing is COVID mm-hmm. where they see that, the, that all of their economic problem. So they, they, the Chinese have burned, I would say burn their bridges because they're building bridges in Europe, but they have lost the ability to say, we are the friend of central Europe. Yeah. And what are the Chinese doing? Whether the, they're doing what Sun Tzu, their great, strategist said is you, you go where the enemy is not. Yep. So the United States is, is being a disaster in Latin America. 
They're flooding in the influence of Latin America in Venezuela, Chile, Argentina, yeah. um, Cuba, and uh, because and and you know uh, you know people for the reason why JFK freaked out uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and the reason why we had the Monroe Doctrine is, and this isn't being an imperialist or colonialist, right? But when you have your your harshest adversary have a a a a, a, a footstep next to your country mm-hmm. that is a a massive strategic threat and and you have to and and the other thing is is the chinese don't care about latin america yeah the whole thing could burn to the ground everybody could die as long as what they're doing is bad for america that's all that matters that is all that matters yeah so let me ask you this question because it's it, it's it's sort of the a question about the practical application of as you would say the right way as i said once and has now become um popular in conversations between you and me the third way what's what's the application of whatever it is we're calling that isn't isolationism and isn't interventionism as it relates to the threat china poses in latin america in other words if if the current administration and policymakers were to take advice from jim carafano right what are the two or three practical steps? Yeah, that so that's right. So one thing which we actually um, innovated here is called the Atlantic Strategy, right? Which is if you look at everything the Chinese are doing from the Arctic to the Antarctic mm. in Southern Europe, Africa, and Latin America, and you just say, okay, I'm going to do nothing about that for a decade. What you will find is there will be so much influence and presence of China in in the Atlantic region mm-hmm. that that will be the the first time since 1945 that we've had to actually worry about our own backyard, right? Not, even during the height of the Cold War, we never really worried about the Russian Navy in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. The last time we really worried about enemies creeping up to our space was when we sank the last U-boat in 1945. Yeah. So this would this is an this would be an incredible game changer. And the problem in the US government is there is nobody below the level of the president that thinks coherently about our own backyard because we never had to do that. So uh, we have like five different combatant commands. Those are the military commands mm-hmm. that, that cover this. We have multiple different departments of state. There, there, nobody, there's nobody in the National Security Council. Nobody below the level of Joe Biden has has the the portfolio to think holistically. And right. if you think Joe Biden is going to do that for you, unfortunately, you're screwed. So that's the number one thing is we need we need to think coherently about this mm-hmm. because it's all one threat. Um, the number two thing, which is look, I- immigration and border security. Yeah, that's where it starts. Because immigration and border security is not just about millions of people crossing our border. It is the number one destabilizing force in Latin America. We are, we are, we are, hmm. we are feeding these cartels billions and billions of dollars a day. We, we, are, we, are, we, are, we have created under Joe Biden the largest human trafficking network in the world, which is paid for by U.S. tax dollars and which is actually subsidizing the cartels in their yeah. operations. Um, and it, that is ba- And the Latin America knows it's bad for it. We know it's bad for it. So that's that's um, clearly uh, number two. The other, th- the, the other thing I think at the end of the day, and, and this is a um, a challenge for us in Latin America and other places around the world, is um, because in great power competition, where the great powers come together, these these small and less capable countries, they, they do matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 the question, and and you want them on your side, but the question is, how do you do that? And the answer is not foreign assistance, right? Um, and, and writing checks, uh, and, and it's not, you know, explaining to them why this is, it, it happens when you create a partnership and I'll give you some really good examples, right? Look at the most successful democracies, emergent democracies and economies in modern times, Taiwan, South Korea, um, 
the the, the tigers. Mm-hmm. None of them got foreign aid. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them became um, successful countries because they uh, they 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 solved the magic triangle: security, good governance, and the economy. I often tell people this is a, you know people talk about Afghanistan and they go, oh, that was on. You know, if I my dad's my dad was in the Korean War, nineteen fifty one, and uh, I served in Korea in nineteen seventy something, nineteen seventy eight. Do the math, yeah. Like it's it's about right. And if if we had pulled out of Korea like Jimmy Carter wanted to do mm-hmm. in nineteen seventy eight, what would have happened? Um, you had a government that was authoritarian. Mm-hmm. They did not have a free market, and it was a very very poor country. Matter of fact, if you got outside of Seoul, it looked like the prehistoric era, right? Yeah. Within a decade, that country became a full-blown democracy, a uh, a net contributor to security, mm-hmm. and one of the most powerful economies in the world. And so, you know, it, look, free societies don't grow on a calendar, but they they grow when when you hit the magic triangle. Yeah. A modicum of good governance, mm-hmm. the ability to protect your people so they're not murdered in their bed. And an economy that's allowed to grow and prosper. That ha- and we can't force that on people. You know, mm-hmm. we can't force them to be successful. We didn't force South Korea. Matter of fact, we were perfectly happy to let South Korea be South Korea forever, right? Yeah. Um, but we were a partner for them when they made that transition. Um, so partnership, not nation building. That's right. There's no successful case in the history of, of that I can think of where nations built other nations, nations rebuilt themselves. Even if you look at Europe after the cold war and Japan, we did not actually rebuild those countries. Mm -hmm. What we, what we did is actually, and again, actually against our common sense, because FDR wanted every American troop out of Mm -hmm. Europe within two years. We only stayed because the Russians were there. That's right. But what happened is we stayed long enough so that the security situation stabilized. Mm -hmm. They were able to elect stable governments and, uh, and, and, and they, they began the path of economic rebuilding. Now the Marshall plan accelerated that. There's no mm-hmm. question about that, but yeah, people have to remember the Marshall plan didn't kick into the 1950s. The foundation was laid in the forties right. when in 1945 or, or say 1946 in 1946, life in Europe was worse than it was in 1945. People were literally starving. The displaced population in Europe was massive. Um, many countries didn't have stable governments. Uh, so when the Marshall Plan kicked in, we kind of had solved the the the, the, the basic things. Mm. And and there is no formula for that. There is just, it's a retail business, I guess, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, Guatemala is a good example. Guatemala would be yep. a great partner for the United States. We should be partnering with them. We shouldn't be chastising with them. Yeah. And instead, we, you know, just to chastise this current administration, uh, they're just they're using foreign aid and other American sources of influence as political cudgels. I mean, this is just a political ideological game for them, as opposed to a grand strategy or anything even approaching a grand strategy. We used to say foreign policy ends at the water's edge. Yeah. Today, in American politics, for the American left, Foreign policy is an extension of domestic politics. If you look at every presidential priority, it is they're only interested in foreign policy as it is an extension of their domestic policy. So they love climate change. Yeah. They love beating up people because they don't have the right gender, you know, policies. Um, But they actually have no. The first question is not not is what is in the best interest of Americans. The first question is, is how can I use foreign policy to further my political agenda? Yeah, that's right. Well, let me. 
Let me shift gears into something that will begin to sound like a conclusion, although I've got a couple of questions for you. The first of those two, Jim, is related to advice that you might give people listening or watching. And I say that because those of us who work at Heritage know you to be a great mentor, not just for junior staff, but for staff generally, including even president of the Heritage Foundation. And 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 I think one of the reasons you're adept at that, and therefore you're sort of you know, like the foreign policy godfather of the movement, one of the reasons you're adept at that is that you're really good at even with people you disagree with, recognizing the validity of some of their points. And so this is the question for you. There are a lot of people who listen or listen to or watch this show who are younger than you and me. They're conservatives, center right for sure. And they're trying to make sense of a lot of competing, even conflicting voices on foreign policy. And they recognize some truth and validity to each of those positions, even though, you know, to, to your taste and mine, some of those are uh, a little too jarring. There are a few too, uh, few too many barbs, we might say. But you're very good at just looking past that and saying, Kevin, we got to get to a coherent, cohesive strategy. What's the advice that you would give to this audience about how they make sense of all of those competing voices? What, in other words, is conservative foreign policy in the future going yeah. to look like? No, I tell people to think for themselves. Right? Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't tell people this is what you should think. Um, you know, we have huge debates in heritage about these things sure. and I, I am, and, embrace it, and I love them because it's like, nobody should just do something because Jim Carafano said so. Right. They should do something because they, they think it's the right thing. And, and I actually have great faith in this. You know, I, hmm. I think people get the human species all wrong <laughs> when, it, you know, inform, people think information management is about giving people what they want. Mm -hmm. And that is wrong because when survival's on the line, humans instinctively want the information they need not the information they want. Right. And if they fear not, they're not getting it, they're more likely to go out and get that. And I'll give you a perfect example. Why is the president of the United States, poll numbers, completely underwater on every major issue Americans care about? Inflation, immigration, border security. Um, and the answer is even, even Ukraine, where mm -hmm. most Americans actually support Ukraine, but they don't support the president on Ukraine. Um, and the answer for that is, is they know something is wrong, mm -hmm. right? And what they've done is, They've gone to other places to look for information mm -hmm. that 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 is not answering. So if somebody just says, well, this is fine. You should just shut up and do that. Mm -hmm. They go, well, that's not working for me. So, for example, one of the reasons I do a lot of talk radio is talk radio, I think, is one of the few mediums in America today where people can hear these long, extended, long form conversations and uh, and 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 uh, in a way that that you can't on kind of the mainstream mm -hmm. media and stuff. So. Um, uh I, I think it's like when you sense that what you're hearing isn't right, then you need to start asking questions and having conversations. Yeah. And and this is where I think many people mis misunderstand conservatism and the conservative movement. Many and, and what they do is is they'll they'll look at a particular voice. Uh and actually I don't I'm not sure this is true in law, but they'll look at a particular voice and they go, Oh my God, they agree with that person. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't think that's right. It's, you know, there was a very famous guy wrote this terrific article back in the eighties, um, about Japan, you know, when Japan was going to take mm -hmm. over the world. Right. And he, and he wrote this wonderful line. He said, just because Americans are enamored with everything Japanese or with it, just because they love sushi, you know, doesn't mean they want to be Japanese. Right. So 
because people find people entertaining and interesting mm-hmm. doesn't mean that they find them persuasive on, on every issue. And we, and we see this in the conservative. And this is one thing. This is why I like being conservative because it's not about an orthodoxy. Yeah. It's, it's about the, the challenge of caring about the same things, a free, safe and prosperous nation and having a debate on how to get there. Yeah. That's what makes us better. Yeah. It makes the country better. So the, the existence of the debate is actually a sign of something that's healthy. Yeah. If we're debating the issues, I think when we start debate about, well, you have to agree with me, you have to agree yeah. with me, then, then, then you're just being like the left. Yeah. Right? That's right. It's just a different form of identity politics. Yeah. Well, we could do this for hours. Of course, we kind of do this for hours, but for well, the you sake- pay me, we can do whatever you want. <laughs> you know, for a guy who before we started recording said, Kevin, I don't even know why we do podcasts. I don't understand podcasts. You're pretty good at this. Although I've noticed you really dislike the microphone. Just keep, yeah, keep, keeps getting in the way here. Yeah. Well, last question, Jim, um, in the category of optimism for the future, do you think, especially when it comes to foreign policy, that America's best days are ahead. Yeah. And I should, uh, it's not that I dislike the microphone, it's that I'm Italian. <laughs> and, and, you know, people that are just listening can't see, but Italians talk with their hands and and it, that's just the way it works out. Um, yeah, look, I wouldn't be here if I didn't mm. think America's finest day, days were ahead. And, and the, you know, part of it is like, I don't care, right? The, so there's, <laughs> I get, there's this terrific film everybody sees called The Bridge Too Far. And, and it, Bridge Too Far is World War II. We were going to cross the Rhine. So we we parachuted these uh, airborne things and we were going to create this airborne carpet and we we're going to walk across all the bridges. Well, the British got the short straw. They got the furthest bridge mm. and uh, and they see, and they they succeeded. They seized the far end of the bridgehead. Um, unfortunately, the Germans had the other end of the bridgehead and all the Germans would, were between them and everybody else. Mm. And so they were kind of stuck there. And then very famously, after a couple of days, they finally made radio communications with 30 Corps and they go, 30 Court, you know, thank God we finally got a hold of you. It says, um, you know, we're here, we're holding on, but we're desperate. We need medical supplies and food and above all ammunition and reinforcements. And the guy in 30 court came back and said, well, that's all very good, but you're completely surrounded and there's no way we can get to you. And the, and the guy answered back, he goes, okay, I guess we'll just stay here then. But, <laughs> but the, the point is, is we have chosen this country and we have chosen these people and these communities and we have made a commitment to do the best that we can for them. Yeah. And, and we're not going to move to Canada. We're going to fight for this country because this country and the people in this country are worth fighting for. And, you know, there are many times in histories when people said America's, you know, days are in the back yard. But, you know, there's a reason why there's a Rocky two and a Rocky three and a Rocky four and a Rocky five. Right. And America is like Rocky. I mean, it's, we will fight. And and I believe that when that when Americans put their heart into it, they will make a comeback. But I go back to what I said about Churchill. We, we cannot make stupid, unforced errors like this and think that our enemies are not going to take advantage of us in the modern world. Yeah. Jim Carafano, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Thanks sir. for everything you do for this organization and most of all for this country. Thank it's you. A pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoy that as much as I did. You can see why all of us at Heritage like working with Jim. We'll be back next time with another great guest, hopefully as good as Jim Carafano. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.